Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians, or ACOFP. Speaking on the subject of hypertension is Dr. Anthony Brown, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. Thank you. Good to be here. The problem with hypertension is it's not painful most of the time, and that's one of the problems. It's uh, asymptomatic, uh, and patients usually present when it's too late or, or when there's problems, and that's why a good percentage of these patients go uncontrolled. Okay. So just uh, the way we're going to do this is just to talk about some things that we should know that are, are common, kind of reinforce what, we sh- what you know, and then at the end are some new stuff. So as far as hypertension goes, this is the most, one of the most common reasons for office visits in the United States today. Uh, 30% of the adults from the NHANES data are going to have hypertension. And that equates to about 65 million Americans. When you're 55 or older, 50% will have hypertension. When you're in your 60s, 60% will have it. And by the time you hit 70, 70% will have hypertension. And there's only 45%, according to the CDC, in 2011 that have controlled hypertension. So that's 55% or so that are uncontrolled out there. And again, part of the problem is they're asymptomatic. When you get into the prehypertension range, your risk, cardiovascular risk, goes up twofold. With every 20 over 10, you go up another uh, twofold percent here. So by the time you're in these ranges, your cardiovascular risk is, uh, is very high. Just a, a little, you could spend a whole hour on pathogenesis, but just briefly, uh, the pathogenesis is due to increased sympathetic neural activity, which increases renin and causes some salt retention. You have increased angiotensin activity. There's a whole host of environmental factors which then play on genetics. Uh, and if you have a parent, one or two parents, you have a twofold increased chance of having hypertension. And then there's some things, if, you have, uh, if you're a, a low birth weight child, uh, maybe as later on you have a reduced nephron mass, you may develop hypertension. Practically speaking, these are the three mechanisms when it comes to treatment that you'll want to focus on for, for, for treatment here. The volume system, so you're going to make sure their volume's controlled, the RAS system, and the sympathetic nervous system. A couple risk factors that are involved here. Uh, it's more common, more severe in the African-Americans. Uh, if you have hypertension in one or both parents, we all know about the salt uh, intake, and I'll show you a little bit about that. Uh, also, alcohol. Obesity is a pretty big one. That, that's a major cause here of hypertension that we're seeing. The other thing, and uh, don't want to be outdone, uh, even vitamin D deficiency looks like it may have a role in hypertension. And a recent study, this was at the American Heart Association, patients were given 200 units, 200, 2,000 units of vitamin D, and they had fairly significant reduction in blood pressure. We're talking 10 over 5, which is a pretty good reduction in blood pressure. So what is the proper workup for a patient with hypertension? And I think the way to approach it is you want to answer these four questions. Does the patient have sustained hypertension? Is it primary or secondary? Do I have risk factors and they have end organ damage? And I have a slide or two on each of them. So you want to make sure that they have sustained hypertension because, number one, this is a fairly asymptomatic disease, and we're going to give them medications that can affect their lifestyle. 
You want to make sure you check it a few times, make sure it's right, check it a couple days in a row uh, before you really make diagnosis. This is an old, this is 20-some years old, where they actually, they must have had medical students back then that wanted some money. They actually put A-lines into patients, had new doctor and a new nurse come in and see the patient and see what happens to the blood pressure response. And initially, when they saw the physician, it was 22 millimeters above what it normally would. Within five minutes, it comes down and then starts leveling off, and a little bit lower for the nurse. And with each recurrent visit, these were a little bit lower, so it attenuates as they get to know you. Second question, is the blood pressure essential? 90-95% of blood pressure is going to be essential. However, there's multiple clues, there's some red flags that you have to recognize uh, that, that pop up that's think of secondary hypertension. So if, it, if the onset is at a younger age, under 25, no family history, or over 55, they get it and all of a sudden it's, it's going up, start thinking of secondary. Obviously, new onset, severe or resistant. If they have symptoms, if their potassium's low, that's a kicker there. So if you start seeing potassium, or if it's provoked by diuretics and it's under three on a diuretic, you start thinking of some things. Um, the last four things there, the urine, the creatinine, the smaller kidney, the rising creatinine and flash pulmonary edema, all are suggestive of renal vascular disease. Here's just some uh, common causes of secondary hypertension. A few of the things just to uh, focus on here as far as drug-induced. Remember, non-steroidals and COX-2 are fairly common cause. They cause salt and water retention, can elevate your blood pressure. And the other things here under antidepressants, uh, the tricyclics, uh, Effexor, Welbutrin, these are all antidepressants that can push up your blood pressure. I put a little star here on stimulants. There's many more people that we're seeing and I'm seeing that have ADD or ADHD that are on meds for these things that clearly can increase heart rate and can increase blood pressure. The third question was, are there other cardiovascular risk factors? And there's an interplay of these risk factors, as we all know. And, and then how hypertension and hyperlipidemia eventually through impaired vasodilatation and endothelial dysfunction will lead to premature coronary vascular disease. The last question you want to know is, does the patient have end organ damage? And there's three, basically three organs. The brain, and the eyes, which is an extension of the brain, right? The heart with these vessels and the kidney. So those are the three things you're looking for for uh, end stage, uh, end organ damage. So if you can, uh, try to look in the back of your patient's eyes. If not, most of your patients have ophthalmologists. And I will frequently give the patient a slip uh, because as you get a little older and if you have trifocals, when you take your glasses off, it takes a while for your eyes to, uh, to accommodate and then it's a little harder for, for some of us uh, now compared to years ago. But if you can get in the back of the eyes, it's very, very important. But I will send a note to the ophthalmologist saying, does this patient have diabetic retinopathy? Do they have hypertensive changes? Uh, and then that gets in the chart. So that's helpful. We're all aware of the complications. These are things we're trying to avoid, right? Premature cardiovascular disease, heart failure, LVH, which is higher risk of sudden death, uh, either uh, an ischemic stroke or a bleed, uh, and a chronic kidney disease or dialysis. So we're trying to avoid these things before we get to that. But if they do make it there, the reason it's important is that if they do have one of these, it changes the goal. 
the goal now is secondary prevention. Uh, so if a patient has a stroke, uh, they have a 50% chance of having a recurrent stroke in the next five years. And current guidelines would have you using a diuretic ACE combo to try to reduce that risk. This is just a reminder, uh, this is the recommended evaluation of patients with hypertension. And, and it's fairly simple. Um, it starts with the history and physical. It's a urinalysis looking for protein or blood. It's just a BMP, uric and lipids, and an EKG. That's how it starts. This other stuff on the bottom, ultrasounds, renal dopplers are all only if there's clues that a secondary cause is going on. These are the questions that get answered. Is it a primary or secondary? So if the urine's abnormal, you have proteinuria in blood. It may tell you they have underlying kidney disease. All right. I have to spend just a little bit of time on lifestyle modifications. Uh, we all know it. doesn't work as well, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. So the first thing is weight reduction. I have a little bit on each of these as we go through these slides. Uh, weight reductions, as you're going to find out, is probably the, most, the best thing you can do with your patients to try to get their blood pressures under control. So it's up to, almost up to 20 millimeters of mercury. The DASH diet, we'll talk a little bit about that. You get a little reduction with that. Dietary sodium, 2 to 2.4 grams per day, which is 6 grams of, so, of, of salt. That's what 2.4 grams of sodium is. Physical activity, uh, if you exercise as much as you can during a week, 30 minutes a day, and then moderation of alcohol. So each individual one, if you look at weight loss and reduction of blood pressure, they actually took like 300 uh, mildly obese patients, and, and this is diastolic blood pressure change. And as they lost weight, they had a progressive uh, decrease in their diastolic blood pressure. The same thing was for systolic. This was like 10 diastolic, it's 20 systolic. Uh, but you can see even 5 to 10 pounds, you still get uh, 10 over 5, which isn't too bad, which isn't too bad. So I think that's, that's, weight loss is an important thing if it can be done. If you look at sodium restrictions, again, I mentioned the uh, less than 2 to 2.4 grams a day. Um, it's more helpful in, in patients that are African-American and some patients with diabetes. Some of these other meds do work better with salt restriction, especially ACEs and diuretics. Uh, you lose some, some efficacy, especially with proteinuria. If you have a patient on an ACE inhibitor who you're using that for reduction of protein and you give them a high-salt diet, that effect is almost nullified. So I keep harping them on, on, on a low-salt diet. If you look at just this, uh, what's the results then? They pulled results here from sodium, a bunch of studies here in different uh, categories on salt uh, reduction. And, and really here in the normal tense of what you're getting is basically uh, five over two and a half change. So it's not earth-shattering, but it's enough. So if you get a little bit here, a little bit there, before you know it, you start coming down a little bit. The DASH diet, just the, the dietary approach is to stop hypertension. It's basically eating healthy. That's, we all know how to do it. It's just hard to do it. So uh, it's, it's, if you follow a low-salt diet, and it's this diet that's low in, in uh, I don't know if you can make those out, but it's basically grains, it's low-fat uh, foods, uh, minimal, uh, minimize the sugars, you actually can get some reduction in blood pressure. And how successful? If you do the DASH diet and watch your salt, you can actually eliminate one med. The problem is good luck. So it may work for three to six months, 
But then you, then you kind of, it's like anything else, it kind of loses its, its steam a little bit. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, keep harping on it. But if someone, I'm sure you all have patients say, Doc, I don't want to be on meds. Well, show them the diet. You can go on the Internet and get the DASH diet. Uh, here's the salt restrictions, and, you know, they may get by with, with nothing. Okay, as far as alcohol, um, two drinks a day. Sorry, ladies, it's yeah, half the amount. Um, and and in this, uh, increasing alcohol will, can increase your blood pressure. Um, and just a few additional recommendations. Nothing big here is that they, if you throw in some omega-3 fatty acids, have a little bit of reduction. Caffeine doesn't look like it really does a whole lot. And as usual, it makes sure they try to discontinue smoking. So just a little segment here on white coat. Um, up to 20% or so, maybe a little higher, may have white coat hypertension. So at home, it's normal. Come in, it's off the wall. Probably follow these. But there's another, another category that are masked, that they're good in the office. Maybe they take all their meds before they come in and see you, and it's good. But the rest of the day, they're high, and these are also at an increased risk. Now, let me just uh, throw a question out for you. The 78-year-old woman, diabetes, coronary disease, CKD, creatinine 2.4. She's seeing you because of persistent hypertension. She's on five meds. Lisinopril, amlodipine, furosemide, metoprolol, and losartan. She's asymptomatic. Uh, however, she tells you in the morning when she wakes up, she's often dizzy. She's checking in at home, and she's getting 100 over 120 systolic. You see her in the office, it's 164 over 70. How many times do we see that? Heart rate's 54. Uh, she's otherwise unremarkable. Urine has some protein. Her creatinine's 238, and her potassium's 41. So, which of the following steps is most appropriate? Tell her to keep checking her blood pressures at home. See her in three months. Do a screen, a diuretic screen. Increase the dose of her losartan. Uh, set her up for ambulatory monitoring, uh, or start her on a clonidine patch. Well. You know, actually, the clonidine, if this really was hypertension, that wouldn't be a bad idea except for the heart rate of 54 because you can get a little bradycardia with clonidine also. Um, but this lady definitely, this is one of the few indications I would say this type of patient needs ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And most don't need it. That's the thing. Most don't need it. Um, it's helpful in selected cases. What we're doing mostly, it's almost like having someone check their sugar three, four times a day. They, when you're trying to establish their patterns, you can tell them to take it three or four times a day and write it down, and you can bring in almost like a glucose log. Uh, and then you can make some determinations. It's helpful in certain cases, just like this woman, that uh, it was kind of getting dizzy and lightheaded in the morning. Probably did have, was overtreated. Now, what about nocturnal hypertension? This is when, normally when you go to sleep, the, average, the blood pressure is going to drop. It's going to drop by like 15%. So if you're 140 over 90 when you're sleeping, it should come down to like 120 over 78. The evidence, though, if it doesn't happen, if the blood pressure does not drop, then you may get classified as something called a non-dipper. So it's less than a 10% reduction. And these patients are at a much higher, greater cardiovascular risk. And then they have the dippers, which do what they're supposed to do. Now, why, what's all the big deal on dipping, non-dipping, et cetera? Now, the reason is, if you look at the study here, there was a study looking 
at 20, two, over 2,000 patients. It was a Hermina study. It's a Spanish study. And what they told patients, they were randomly inside. They say, take all, one group took all their meds in the morning. The other group, they said, take at least one of your pills at night. Just one. Take more, but at least one. And then they followed them, and they followed them over five and a half years. And what they found, that there's a significant reduction not only in the nighttime blood pressure, but it looked like even during the day you had better, better maintenance of blood pressure. And, and what has led, there's other studies that show this, and this is actually one of the, uh, the ads that are out, uh, is nighttime the right time? Well, it looks like there, there probably is a survival advantage. And there's a recent uh, uh, little blog out that, that, that we should really be saying, brush your teeth and take your blood pressure at night, take your blood pressure med at night, because there's also some evidence that periodontal disease may increase blood pressure through inflammatory mechanisms. So brush your teeth and take your blood pressure at night. And, and, and part of the reason is, if you think about it, they take all these meds in the morning, let's say lisinopril, hydrochlorothiazide, and amlodipine. By about 2 in the morning, they're wearing off. So that's usually what's happening. They're starting to wear off, and you're not really getting 24-hour coverage. So if you give one in the morning, give one at night, now you may have a better 24-hour coverage. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs> 